start in the uh, Colossians, the first verse, and we'll read the, um, I mean, the first chapter. We'll start in verse 1, and we'll read down to verse number um, um, 9. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed the whole world. It is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Thank you. You could be seated. Um, before you leave today, I want to um, remind you that there are prayer guides um, in the back. And as part of the prayer guide in the back, that if you didn't receive the email on the prayer guide, um, then you can find a printed copy of that. And part of the prayer that we're praying together this week is from Colossians, the first chapter. Picks up where I left off reading and goes um, kind of all the way over, I think, until verse number, uh, I don't know, to verse number uh, 13, the end of verse number 13. But let us join as a time of prayer, as we talked about last week, that we can talk about praying. We can, we can even say our prayers, and saying our prayers is vastly different from actually praying. And so if you want to keep your Bibles open, I'm just going to simply pray and read, um, starting in verse number um, 15 of Colossians, the first chapter, and read this as a, as a prayer and a consecration for us before we unpack what God has for us in his word. So let us pray. Jesus, we pray to you that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that we may walk in a manner worthy of you fully pleasing to you, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of you, that you would strengthen us with your power, all power, according to your glorious might for the endurance and the patience that we may do that with joy. We give thanks to you, our Father, for you have qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. You have delivered us from the dominion of darkness and you have transferred us to the kingdom of your beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Praise be unto you for that. Jesus, you are the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by you all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through you and for you. And you are, Jesus, you are before all things. And in you all things hold together and you are the head of the body. Yes, the church, even this church. You are the head this church. You are the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything you, Jesus, might be preeminent. For in you, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through you, you are reconciling all things to yourself. Whether they're on this earth or they're in heaven, how are you reconciling it? You're doing it by bringing peace, by your blood of your cross. And we, the believers in this room, part of your invisible church, we who were once alienated and hostile in mind, we were doing evil deeds, but you, Jesus, you have now reconciled us to yourself through your body of the flesh by your death in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before you. And now we pray that we would continue in our faith. We would be stable and steadfast not shifting from the hope of the gospel that we have heard, which has been proclaimed in all of creation under heaven. Amen. So we've been in a series where we have been talking about discipleship. And in the series on discipleship, a couple of things that we've been uh, talking about. One thing we've talked about is 
the very term discipleship is a, or, or being a disciple is a very pregnant term. I mean, we could break it down into its most, uh, its, its most uh, basic definition. And what is a disciple? What a disciple is this? Simply a follower of Christ. It is someone who's following Jesus. But let's just be honest, even that definition isn't super helpful because what does it mean to follow Jesus? I mean, let's be honest. Where's Jesus right now? Ascended into heaven ruling and reigning on a throne, and you and I are left here on this earth, and while we live in this earth, we experience very much a, a lot of good stuff, but let's just be honest. You and I are struggling and toiling and here, living on this earth. We're all probably, uh, uh, everybody in this room is all um, working for the weekend, right? Except for me, because the weekend's the day, that I, the, only, the day that I have to work. But the rest of you in here, you're living and working for the weekends that are to come, and we get caught up in the, in the pleasures, although that's not a bad thing. We get caught up in the pleasures of this life, and we're just trying to make it through and, you know, whether it be to ourselves, raise kids, have families, do all of those great things. And so even in that, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What's the picture of, of, of followers of Christ? And so we are, we're in a sermon series where we're defining that and discussing that. We're discussing that very pregnant term of, of disciple and discipleship. In fact, last week we looked at a, a passage of scripture that's very helpful to us because it gives us a description of what the early church looked like. What are those first followers of Jesus look like? After the, Jesus has ascended on high and sent the Holy Spirit and the day of Pentecost has happened and now Peter preaches or 3,000 disciples, what does that look like? And we can find that in Acts, the second chapter. In Acts, the second chapter, in one verse we'll pull out in particular in the 42nd verse, we see in that text of scripture a description of what it means to be a follower of Jesus what it means for these early disciples. We see here that it says in verse number 42, and it should be on the screen, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. And we said there are four markers, if you will, of the early church. There's, there, are, there are four um, things that the early church has incorporated into their very living that, that gives life to their discipleship, that helps to make them and to form them and to send them as disciples. We see the four things. They are um, devoted to the apostles' teaching. They're uh, devoted to the word of God. That's today's sermon. Second, they're devoted to fellowship. This is the unique relationship, the unique harmony and unity of the church. It's being evidenced in humility and generosity, service, mutual love, mutual discipleship to one another. They're, they're come together for the breaking of bread. They're devoted to the breaking of bread. And we talked about that briefly for last week, but what I really believe the breaking of bread that they're devoted to refers to the Lord's Supper. And what I believe that is a greater picture of is, is the fact that they are being built upon the foundation of the gospel. Today's sermon, the finished work of Christ on their behalf was at the very center of everything this church said and did not just meeting needs, not just serving one another, but it was gospel-centered meeting people's needs, gospel-centered um, serving one another. It was gospel, the gospel was giving life to everything that they said and everything that they did. And as we discussed last week, and they were devoted to prayers. What also helps us in understanding discipleship is our identities as a church. What does it mean to be a disciple? Well, this is for us. This is how we've defined it. What does it mean for being a disciple? What well, means this? We're followers of Christ and we are learners. We're family. We're servants. We're missionaries. Now, some of you are going to go like, man, when did, those, when did those happen? They've been up for weeks. You haven't noticed them? Just kidding. They, they got hung up this week. So they, they, they are new. Some of you are like, well, I've been here. Maybe you're visiting. They're brand new but they are reminders to us of who we are and who we want to be. And so this week from Colossians, the first chapter, I want us to look at what it means to be a church that is learning, learning the gospel, learning the truths of, of, of what Jesus is teaching, learning to obey Jesus, to love Jesus, to love our neighbors as ourselves. What does it mean to be disciples who are devoted to the word of God? That's really what we're after here. And I think Colossians gives us just a fantastic picture. In fact, when we talk about learner, the word disciple and learner, they're actually synonymous. Like they mean the same thing. Like a disciple is a learner. A learner should be, if it's a learner of Christ, is a disciple of Christ. And what we see happening in Colossians, the first chapter, is we see four facets of discipleship. 
We see four facets of, as they are learners of what that means. And these are the four facets. I'll give them and then we'll preach through them, all right? So it means to learn, to grow, to produce, and to reproduce. So the four facets of discipleship from Colossians, the first chapter, verses one through eight, are these four, to learn, to grow, to produce, and to reproduce. First, it means to learn. The disciples, they are those who learn. We gain information about something. We know a little something, something. That we see this even in Jesus's ministry. As Jesus sets up his ministry, Jesus goes to be baptized by John the Baptist. And as Jesus enters into the water, the voice of the Father comes out and everyone can hear this voice. And this is what the father says about his son, Jesus. He says, this is my son and who I am well pleased. And then it follows with the voice of the father saying, now listen to him. He does not say, this is my son, love him. He does not say, this is my son, serve him. He does not say, this is my son, obey him, worship him. None of those things, adore him. He could have said any number of those things, but the voice of the father comes to to those disciples gathered around Jesus, witnessing him being baptized. And the father says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Here's what I want you to do. Listen to him. That a disciple is a learner. It's a good listener. It's taking in all of the truths and all of the teachings and all of the revelation knowledge that Jesus has for us. That we are as disciples in this church, we are learning systematic instruction in the doctrines of Jesus Christ. The disciples are people who we come underneath Jesus' teaching. We submit to his ways and we want to learn what it means to glorify Jesus with our very own lives. What does that look like? We see in Colossians, the first chapter, we see a glimpse of that. If you have your Bibles, keep them out. We'll be circling around just a couple of verses really in the, in the text. But look with me, if you would, in Colossians, the, fourth, the, the first chapter, the fourth verse. Paul writes and says, Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard. It's a key word you've heard before in the word of the truth the gospel, which it has come to you, as indeed it's, it's coming to the whole world. It is bearing fruit and it is increasing. It is growing and it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and you understood it, there's the key. Hearing it and understanding it is key. What did they hear? What did they understand? Well, they understood the grace of God in truth. Verse number seven, just as you learned it, from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. What are they learning? Well, namely, they are learning the word of the truth. He says here, it's a synonymous for the gospel. They are learning the gospel, the grace of God in the truth. But to be a disciple of Jesus, all of our learning is to be built upon and around the gospel. Now, those of you that have been part of the Point Community Church for any any length of time, you know what's coming is I'm going to tell you what the gospel is. And many of you here, you're gonna go like, you know what? I feel like I've heard it a million times. And I would say, praise Jesus for that and get ready because you're gonna hear it for a million and one times because it's so vitally important that you and I understand what is the gospel. Therefore, we can spot what the gospel is not, right? We gotta know what the gospel is. So what is the gospel with simply this? The word even gospel means the good news. So the gospel is a proclamation, not what you should do, must do, have to do in order to win favor with God, but the gospel first and foremost is good news. It is a proclamation of what God has done for you. It, is the, it must be heralded. The gospel is the good news that must be heralded. It must be proclaimed. It must be preached. It must be told. It must be shared. And that good news is that God saves sinners like you and I. And how does he save sinners like you and I? Well, he saves us through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the good news that we must believe in order to become a Christian. 
And that is the good news that you and I must continue to believe. All of our lives, we stake that as our foundation, that that gives power and life and vitality to all of the teachings of Jesus. The gospel is not something that we simply leave behind in our past, but it is something that we carry with us day in and day out, as we'll even see as this sermon unfolds. The truth of the gospel is this, God saves sinners. He saves them to the utmost. The apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that we who heard the truth in the gospel, we have been saved and we are being saved by the truth of the gospel. But then he also warns that it's foolishness and folly to those who don't believe in it. The preaching of the cross is foolishness and folly to those who don't trust in the gospel day in and day out. The God who is holy and just and righteous and transcendent and pure and majestic, that he has chosen to reach out to sinners, to establish a relationship with them, to extend his grace and his mercy and his love to them. And he chose to bring us into his family. The very ones who have rebelled against him, the very ones who have profaned his name, the very ones who have disobeyed all of God's holy law, God out of his kindness and grace and mercy, he reaches out and he saves sinners. Now, how does he do it? It's not that he just dismisses our sin. It's not that he just turns a blind eye to our sin. It's not that he just says, hey, you know what? You didn't really mean it. It really isn't that bad. I know your heart and I know your heart didn't mean to disobey me, to run from me, to, to run to idolatry, to profane my name, to live however you wanna live. I know that really wasn't your heart. No, 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 that's not how God deals with our sin. That you and I, our very real sins that you and I have, been, have committed before God. All of our sins, our past sins in this moment, our present sins, because some of you might be sinning right now. You could be. You, I hope you're not, but you may. And you're going to sin in the future, right? Like how many of you think you're going to sin in the future? Yes, and all of those sinful acts both the acts that we do and the very nature of our heart, that sin isn't just things that we commit with our hands or things that enter into us in our mind. And more importantly, what the scripture teaches that everyone is born in sin. Like we see pictures of this, do we not, in our, in our kids. Like if you've never seen that in your kid, you're just like, hey, my kid's good. Like maybe it's just my kid or I know it's not because I've served back in children's ministry before. Like if you want a picture of, of fallenness, of what we'd say total depravity, like go back and serve back there. I mean, it's a glorified thing that we need to do to share the gospel with our kids. And we pray, as even Bo has prayed for my own kids. Jesus, we pray for their salvation. Save them. Like how many of you had to pull your child aside and say, hey, here's how you be mean to other kids. Hey, when somebody takes your toy, here's what I want you to do. Go over and I want you to sock them in the eye. Like, did you have to teach your kid that? Do you have to teach your kid how to throw a fit in the middle of Walmart, right? When the pastor's in the next aisle over, right? But that happens, does it not? Like it happens. How do they know that? Because they're little sinners and it's showing up in them. And then we all are sinners. But here's the beauty of the gospel is that all of our sin, our past sins, our present sins, even that academic sin that we fall under, it has all been paid by Jesus's perfect life and Jesus's death and Jesus's bodily resurrection, that Jesus has lived the life that you and I could never live. That Jesus never committed a sin. Jesus was never unfaithful to the Father. A sinful thought never entered into Jesus's mind. He lived that life that you and I could not live that it is no coincidence that when we see in Genesis and we see Adam and Eve being placed in a garden, who shows up in that garden? A serpent, Lucifer, Satan, and he tempts Adam and Eve to sin. And when Jesus shows up on the scene, this is no coincidence, but where does Jesus go as he begins his earthly ministry? Shortly after his baptism, he's led by the Holy Spirit to the wilderness, right? to another place. And who shows up in the wilderness as Jesus is fasting and praying for 40 days and 40 nights? A serpent. Satan shows up and Satan tempts Jesus in the similar fashions that Adam and Eve were tempted, in the similar fashions that Jesus is tempted. They were tempted to eat. Jesus is tempted to eat. 
Jesus, I know you're hungry. You've been fasting here for 40 days. I mean, I can't only make it 40 minutes, let alone 40 days. What you could do, Jesus, use your power, turn these rocks, turn them into bread. Just as Adam and Eve are tempted to eat, Jesus is tempted to eat. Adam and Eve, they're tempted to think of themselves and their own glory in order to become like God. God knows he doesn't want you to eat of this fruit for in the day that you eat of this fruit, right? You're gonna become like God. That's the lie that Satan speaks. But Jesus, when he shows up, he's taken up into a high place. The enemy says, throw yourself down and show the world who you really are. Show them your glory, show them your power. And every place that Adam and Eve failed miserably, every place where Jesus reigned victoriously, that he did what they could not do. In every situation, in every aspect, in every component, in every temptation where they failed and in every aspect and in every temptation and in every component where you and I have been tempted and failed. That's why the apostle Paul could say, no temptation has seized you except for what's common to man. That Jesus himself was tempted in every way. And all of the places where you and I have failed and we've lost our temper, and we've sinned, and we've cussed, and we've profaned, and we've lusted, and we've on and on and on and on and on it goes. And all of those places, Jesus was tempted, and Jesus never failed. He never failed. That Jesus lived the life that you and I should have lived. He lived a life in our place. And here's the beauty of the gospel. That when you and I come to Jesus in faith, that perfect life is counted and accredited to you. It is imputed to you that God, the holy and just judge of the universe, when he looks at your life by faith, he sees the life of Christ covering and imputing your life. That often when we think of the gospel, we just think of the gospel as the forgiveness of sins. It's believing in the blood of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ that forgives us of our sins. And there, that is true. There's a terminology for that. It's the word justification. And people may ask you like, well, what does justification mean? And we've come up with this like cute way of describing justification. And we would say, well, justification means the word is justified. And it's like, just if I'd never sinned. How does the father sees you? Well, he sees you just if I had never sinned. And I'm not saying that's untrue, but what I am saying is that is not complete. True, the father sees you. In, in a state where the Father has fully forgiven you of all of your sin. He says in the psalmist writes, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far God casts your transgressions away from you and from himself that he no longer sees you as a dirty, rotten sinner, a failure, any of those things. He now sees you forgiven, but now there's another side of the story that he now accredits Christ's perfect righteousness to you. It's a state of forgiveness even a state of sinlessness, but even more than that, it is the state of perfect righteousness. And that's how the Father sees you. He sees you in light of that. And by faith in Christ, we live a life that Jesus lives. It's that good news, that's glorious news. It's the truth that Jesus died a agonizing, punishing death in our place as our substitute. That even though Jesus never committed one sin, Jesus is the perfect lamb of God who died for our sins that on the cross, the father turns all of his wrath upon his son, all of the father's holy, just, right indignation and anger is turned against his son. What's the real pain of the cross? It's not the nails, it's not the, it's not the spear, it's not the crown of thorns. The real pain and agony of the, of the cross is right there. It is when Christ becomes, the theological word in the Bible is a propitiation. When Christ propitiates the Father's wrath on our behalf, when Christ becomes a lightning rod, that's what I want you to picture. When you think of Calvary, when you think about Christ upon a cross, what I want you to think about is not just a Savior dying, agonizing death, but what I want you to think of is I want you to think of a lightning rod drinking in all of the Father's wrath for us, that Christ on the cross, he has substituted himself in our place. And lastly, the good news is that Jesus rose bodily from the grave for our justification. That he rose again from the dead, the grave. He died on a cross, was laid in a tomb. Three days later, he rose again bodily from the grave. 
He does that to show that he was truly God. He does that to secure for you and I who believe in him a life free from sin, free from Satan, and free from death. And to show that his sacrifice was accepted by the Father. That everything that Jesus promised and said was accomplished. How do we know it was accomplished? Because Jesus isn't in a grave. That's how you know. How do we know the Father received the gift of the Son's death? Because he resurrects him from the dead and allows him to ascend on high. And this is the good news. This is what we as Christians, this is what we cling to with every ounce of our being. This is our ultimate hope as disciples. Now listen to me. The degree to which you respond to that gospel really reveals how much you really know the gospel. The degree to which you respond to the gospel reveals how much you really know the gospel. Let me just think about it for a second. You live all of your life as a slave, an indentured servant, serving a horrible, mean, cruel taskmaster. And all of a sudden, someone shows up one day and pays you a ransom and sets you free. But he didn't even set you free and go, here you go, now you got nothing. No, 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 no. He invites you and includes you into his home. He calls you his child. He invites you to his table. He gives you an inheritance. He provides for you every single day. How would you respond to that news? How would you respond to the person who has paid your your ransom? How would you respond to your benefactor? How would you respond? Wouldn't you shout? Wouldn't you dance? Wouldn't you jump for joy? Wouldn't you sing? Isn't that how you would respond to this gracious gift this person has given to you? In fact, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he's a He's one of those dead preachers that I absolutely love. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he, he said um, that if you go back, he, he noticed if you go back to the Old Testament and you look at the prophecies of the coming of, of the gospel work, the coming of Jesus and what Jesus is going to do, you will find, he says, that they are lyrical in nature, right? He said, think of this, think of Isaiah 35, think of Isaiah 55, that when this comes, when the gospel comes, when Jesus does his work, What Isaiah writes, he says, the lame man is going to be going out leaping like a calf, like a deer. Every man is going to be singing and rejoicing. This, that is the note, the mere thought of it, the mere thought of what Christ would do, the suggestion of it. It always brings in this element of praise and of rejoicing and of thanksgiving. In the words of John Stott, John Stott said, for God came after us in Jesus Christ. And he pursued us even to the desolate agony of the cross where he took our place, bore our sin, and died our death in order that we might be forgiven. Then he rose and ascended and sent the Holy Spirit who is able to enter our personality and change us from within. John Stott says, if there is any better news for the human race than this, I for one have never heard it. That right there beats the billion-dollar lottery ticket. That right there beats it every day, all day. No doubt about it. That when you and I, when we learn the gospel, when we're growing in in our knowledge of the gospel, that you and I should respond to the gospel with joy-filled submission, with thanksgiving, with worship, with joy, with happiness that you and I, we should sing and celebrate, that you and I, on every Sunday morning, we should fill up this room with loud, raucous singing to the great God who has saved us by sacrificing his son for us. That not only are we to be and to make disciples who learn and are learning the gospel, we are also to be and to make disciples who grow, that our learning is for growing. That's why we're learning. Why are you growing? What is happening? It's happening in you so that you may grow. We see this in the, in the church in Colossians. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, Paul says. It's the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and it is increasing. That's the word grow. It's bearing fruit and it's growing as it also does among you since the day you heard it 
and you understood the grace of God in truth. So Paul says there was a day you heard the gospel and you rejoiced in the gospel. And now what you're doing is you're just learning more and more of the depth and the beauty and the power, all of the implications, all of the declarations of the gospel. You're now growing in those things. You didn't just didn't hear the gospel and embrace it in one point in your life. No, 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 they're growing in it, growing up in it, that God, through our knowledge of and our belief in the gospel, it gives us power and life and freedom and victory in our present lives. That we are to grow into all the fullness of the work and the declaration and the implications of the gospel. That the gospel is not simply the means of salvation, but it's also the means of transformation in our lives. That the gospel comes to us, as I said, as good news. It's a declaration. But then there's also an experience that you and I should have and the, listen, the, 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 as much about the gospel that we know is as how far apart the declaration and the experience will be. That as we are growing in the gospel, that we should bridge the gap and get closer and closer to the very experience of the declarations that the gospel says. So the gospel is good news that's heralded. It's a message to be told. You and I, we believe in the gospel. We trust in the gospel. We learn the gospel. We're growing in the gospel. And the growth looks like it's very real experiences in our life. Like, let me show you, for example, a couple of examples. In the gospel, you and I, we are told, we are proclaimed that we are adopted by God the Father. That's a, that's a declaration. We don't feel anything differently. We're told, declared that we receive not a spirit of fear, but we spirit, receive a spirit of adoption by which we now can cry, Abba, Father, to God. That's truth in God's scripture that we are told that happens the moment we believe in the gospel. That's the truth of that. That we are included now into the family of God through our faith in the finished work of Christ. But the degree of acceptance and approval and love that you presently feel from the Father is directly related to your growth in the gospel. Let me just ask you a few questions. Do you feel the need to prove yourself? Either to prove yourself to God or to prove yourself to others. Do you feel the need to perform, to perform to win God's love, affection, and approval? Do your prayers sometimes look like this or maybe in the back of your th- in your mind, you think about this. If I'd only lived a better life, if I only read more, prayed more, gave more, served more, sinned less, then God would really love me and accept me. Let me ask you, do you front load your prayers with a lot of groveling? Do you beat yourself up before the Lord? Now, in no way do I want to diminish confessional prayers. We need to have times of honest confession when we're confessing our prayers to the Father. But let me ask you, do you do that all the time? And do you do that on the front end of your, of your prayers? Do you feel the need to remind God of who it is he has purchased? Maybe you don't even pray at all because you know I'm a filthy, stinking sinner. Who am I to pray? Who am I to ask God to do anything in my life? But that is not consistent to the type of praying that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. How are we as his disciples? They come to Jesus. Jesus, John taught his disciples to pray. You teach us to pray? Jesus says, yes, when you pray, pray like this. Our who? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What he teaches them in that moment is the very truths of adoption that you've been adopted in. You have the right to call God your Father and he is your Father. He knows exactly what he got when he purchased you. And this is what happens when you believe the gospel. But the degree to which you live in that, that you live free from the need to prove yourself. When you're fully saturated and your hearts are fully saturated in the Father's love for you, it really reveals the degree that you've grown in the gospel. The degree in which you have grown in the gospel is directly related to how much victory you have in your experience, in your temptations. That the gospel, again, it is a declaration that you are a holy people. That you've been washed. You've been made new. You've been regenerate. He's washed you with the spirit of regeneration. That's you're a brand new person. That's truth that you have received the forgiveness of sins. But both the degree of condemnation and the degree of forgiveness that you feel 
is directly related to how much you have grown in the gospel. The degree of victory that you experience over your sin struggles is directly related to your growth in the gospel. It's not just a declaration of purity and holiness, but the gospel is the power by which we receive the Holy Spirit and the Holy, indwelling Holy Spirit is the very active agent of God producing transformation in our lives. That's why Paul writes in the eighth chapter, um, the 13th verse, if you by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Why? Because it's the Spirit that's getting power to you to enable you to put to death the deeds of the body. The degree of stress-free, anxiety-less living that we have is directly related to our growth in the gospel. First Peter 5, 7. Peter writes and he says, cast your anxieties, cast your cares, cast your concerns upon him because he cares for you. So he's describing a type of prayer where in that prayer we are, we're casting. Now, do, do, do you know anything about casting? I know very little about casting because I got to do very little fishing this year. I feel rusty. I don't even, can't even think of a sermon illustration about casting right now. So we won't even talk about fishing, but think about it for a minute. In casting, you're casting a lure away from you. It was here, but now it's over there. If you were to cast a rock, right? I, 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 could, I could drill Clint Goins right now with a rock, but you cast a rock like that. You, you throw it. It once was in your hand, but you no longer have it because you've cast it. And what Peter's saying is you can cast your very real anxieties, cares, and concerns that all of us have. You have the right to cast them upon God. But then Peter follows up with just don't cast them upon God because he is sovereign. He doesn't cast them upon God because he's all powerful, although he could say those things. What does he say in that? Cast your cares and your anxieties and your concerns upon God because why? Because he cares for you. How much does God care for you? The gospel. The gospel is the declaration of God's care and concern and love for you. He loved you so much that he sent his son to that cross. What happened to Christ when he lived on this earth was no accident. It is not a picture of the cruelty of man. What is happening in that cross is the Father's plan is unfolding to save us from our sin. It is the Father's declaration of his love for his people, his love for his children. You and I, who know the gospel and are growing the gospel, we should never worry, does God ever care or is concerned about these small things? Because in the greatest of areas, in the place where you and I had no power to save ourselves, God has shown up in his might, in his strength, with his unfailing, workable plan that is unfolded in his son, Jesus. And think about, like, I mean, God had to in order to, to display his justice. There was no other way to save us, but the father was willing and the son was willing. That is a declaration of his love for you. And if he loves you that much to take care of that, is he not gonna take care of the starter on your car? Is he not gonna give whatever that is, fill in the blank for this right here is plaguing me. This is my concern. This is my prayer right now. If I didn't have this, I could sleep better at night. Whatever that thing is, the father cares about that thing because he cares about you. And he's willing, he's very willing to take care of that. And if he doesn't take care of it, if he doesn't fix it, it's not inconsistent with his love for you. Why? Because the greatest picture of the consistency of God's love is found in the gospel. You want more? Like that was a question, just a little bit. If your life, if your life lacks a vital daily intimacy with God, you need to, you need to grow in the gospel. You need to grow in the gospel. Because the gospel is, in the gospel, what happens when Jesus dies on the cross? What happens in the temple? The Holy of Holies, the curtain is ripped. I mean, the place where only a high priest could go in and had to be a high priest that had done all this jazz in order to enter in. Someone who was ritually pure, almost perfect, you know, life. And if he went into the very presence of God, struck dead as the holiness of God came. And now the holiness of God, the very presence of God dwells where? In you. So if your life lacks vital daily intimacy with God, here's what you need. You need to grow in the gospel. You need to hear the gospel again and again. You need to preach the gospel in your heart. 
If you feel abandoned and alone and unloved and unaccepted, as if no one cares about you, then listen, here's what you need. You need to grow in the gospel. And if you feel the need to always look good, to impress others with outward things that have status symbols, possessions, things that you really don't even possess, things that either they possess you or things that the bank really possesses, right? But it's all out here as a, as a front to make you feel better about you and to make others feel better about you. And if that's the way that you're living your life, then you need the gospel. You need to grow. You need to grow in the gospel. If you struggle to trust things to God, if you feel you have to fix all of your problems, take matters into your own hands, you need to grow in the gospel. If you have a critical spirit, if you're constantly complaining and fighting and fighting with bitterness, if you're not very teachable, if, you're e if you become easily defensive when accused of error or weakness, I never struggle with that. What do you need? You need to grow in the gospel. If you lack confidence, if you often feel discouraged and defeated, if your solution to your fa own failure is just, I just need to try harder. I just need to try harder. Guess what you need? To grow in the gospel. If you constantly find yourself tearing others down, if you're a competent analyst of others, looking at their weakness, if you're overly competitive, if you tend to compare yourself with others, if you need to be in control of every situation and of every person, guess what you need? Some medication. No, the gospel. Yeah, a gospel, the gospel. If you're motivated by obligation and duty and not out of love, what do you need? You need the gospel. You need to grow in the gospel. And that's why for us here at the Point Community Church, we will never graduate from the gospel. We will never depart from the gospel. The day that we move past the gospel is the day that we've moved into powerless Christianity. It is a day that which is an oxymoron. The day that we have moved into a gospelless religion is a day we've moved into a dead religion. And as even the Apostle Paul says in Romans first chapter, it is the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. It will never be that we decide, well, you know what? We've heard enough of the gospel, so let's just move on to deeper things, more challenging things. No, 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 no. There are no deeper things. There are no more challenging things than the very truths of the gospel. The gospel is not the milk and biblical principles is the meat. The gospel is the only means of real growth, maturity in the church. We may learn other things in the Bible, but the foundation of all other things must be built upon the gospel. You and I, we must learn and relearn how to live again. That we are living totally new lives that we're learning and growing in what it means to be a son and a daughter and a child of God, that we're learning what it means to be a ransomed slave from the clutches of sin and Satan, a citizen of heaven, a servant of the king, the temple of God, a holy people, a holy priesthood, all declarations of the gospel. But now you and I, we must learn and grow in what it means in a very real life experience of what it means to live in that. And I would be remiss if I didn't if I didn't mention our DNA groups here. How are we learning the gospel and growing in the gospel here in our discipleship groups? That our DNA groups, what we want our DNA groups, our discipleship, nurture, and accountability groups, we want them to be those very things right there where you come in and you say, here's my real struggle. I'm struggling with anxiety. I'm struggling with uh, I'm, I'm struggling with control and I feel the need to take control. I'm struggling with condemnation. I'm struggling with this very real sin struggle. And then the rest of the people in your group, the rest of the men for the men and the ladies for the ladies, we just sit around and we just launch truths from the gospel to you. We just come in like a, with like a surgeon with a scalpel and we just cut away at what your, your unbelief and your areas of unbelief that has encapsulated your heart and your mind with the truths of the gospel. And then we come back out and we, like a good surgeon, we, we sew you shut and we slap a little. My, my grandfather always like put this stuff called porters, right? It was in this little green can. It smelled horrific. But it didn't matter what was wrong with you. My grandfather, come in here, son. We'll put a little porters on it. It'll take care of it. It'll heal it up. You know, take care of it. Doesn't matter what it is. Blister, bruise, sore throat. 
drink some porters, right? It didn't matter what it is. And in the same way the gospel works like that, it is the balm of Gilead. It is a salve to our souls. And that's what we want happening in our discipleship groups. If you're not in a discipleship group, the way to get in one is to fill out that connect card and put discipleship group and we'll connect you with one. Let's finish up here. Not only are we learning, not only are we growing, but we're to produce and to reproduce. First, let's look at produce. That we're learning is for growing and growing is for producing and for reproducing. Of this, he says, you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and it is increasing. Now, uh, my family, we farmed for very, just a very short time. There's a reason why we farmed for a very short time because we weren't very good at it, right? But this much I know. Like you can't just stand in a field and will it to produce fruits and vegetables. I mean, it doesn't work that way. You can't just like, you can't even just plow up a field and then with sheer will, like I really want it to produce, you know, tomatoes. Like it just doesn't work that way. Stuff will grow there, but it's called weeds and it's not good and you can't eat it. Well, maybe some of you might try to eat some of those weeds, but that's on you. But you get what I'm saying. Like fruits and vegetables, they just don't grow out of nowhere, but a seed must be planted into the ground. If that seed is planted in the ground and it receives the sun and the water and proper elements needed, it produces a plant and that plant produces, or a tree, that plant produces fruit. And in the same way, the Apostle Paul says the gospel is coming and it's producing and it's bearing fruit. It is powerful. It carries life in it. And what is it producing? What is it that the gospel is producing in our hearts and in our lives? Well, if we looked here at what Paul says in Colossians, the first chapter, we could underline three things, three virtues that the gospel is producing. Faith, hope, and love. Those are the primary gospel virtues that the gospel produces in our hearts. It gives us a faith in the Lord, a steadfastness. It gives us hope, a a sure confidence as we sang about this sure and steady anchor. I mean, I, I know that song's got a lot of words to it, but think about, engage your minds to the words when we sing Christ, a sure and steady anchor. I was reading it going like, oh my gosh, this is so good. Yes, this is what I need in my life right now. That's gospel hope and it produces love. We could also think about what Paul says in the book of Galatians. In fact, he picks up on that same analogy. He talks about fruit. And Paul teaches that there is, in Galatians, the fifth chapter, there is fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And these virtues are produced in us as the seed of the gospel is planted in a soft and teachable heart. They are given the safety and the time and the space to grow under the teaching of the word. Healthy, safe community produces disciples who produce virtue. I mean, who doesn't, I say this all, like one, who doesn't want to be that person? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Man, sounds like a, sounds like a great life. Who doesn't want to be married to that person? It's like a great spouse to be married to. Who doesn't want that person as a dad, as a mom, as a neighbor, as a son, as a co-worker, as a boss? Gosh, yes, produce that all for the glory of God. Not in and of ourselves, but for the glory of God. That virtue comes by the implantation of the seed. That's how it comes. How do we produce fruit? We produce fruit. We produce these kinds of lives, lives of freedom, lives of joy, lives of love. How do we produce it? We produce it by the seed of the word of God, the gospel. We don't become a more kind person by focusing on kindness. We don't sit down with a tablet and say, let me make a list of three ways that I need to be more kind to other people and then go on and try to do it. The godly kindness is produced when we think of the kindness of the Lord that he has shown to us in Jesus. How is patience produced in us? The virtue of patience, it isn't produced in us by God putting us in the longest line at Walmart. It's not produced by us getting behind the slowest moving car in the world on the east-west connector. Probably be me. It's not produced 
in us as we sit at every traffic light. We say that, that, oh, God's just trying to teach me patience. That's not how God teaches us patience. God teaches us by patience when we focus on and think about and let the patience of the Lord, how steadfast and slow to anger he has been with you. That he should have And he didn't. That was close. That's how God produces godly character in us. It's displayed to us in the gospel. And as we focus on it, believing it, it produces it in us. And lastly, we are to reproduce. Fruit contains seeds. Fruit producing disciples should be reproducing disciples. Who taught the gospel to the disciples in Colossae? Not Paul, the super servant. Not Paul, the super apostle. Not Paul, but look at what the scripture says. Epaphras, a beloved servant, a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. Not a super apostle, just a regular Joe disciple teaching others. And as we said last week, the word of God, the gospel, it comes to us so that it can go through us. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your beautiful gospel. And as we have just a moment to remember it, that you've given to us, Jesus, means by which that we, every week, we can remember your beautiful sacrifice of what you have done for us. As we enter into that time, Jesus, may you May you root out all of the places in our lives that are inconsistent with that gospel declarations. Lord, may we not be quick to just write off like, okay, I'm good. But may we spend real time with you. That many of us, we live lives devoid of your power, devoid of your freedom. And that's not gospel living. You didn't come, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross, to give your lifeblood, to purchase a people to yourself, for us just to live status quo, mediocre lives. But you're ransoming a people for yourself, for your own praise, who are filled with worship and joy-filled submission to you, who are living changed lives, lives that love you, honor you, glorify you, you, Lord. Lives that feel very different from the way they felt before our faith in you. You filled us with your spirit. Your spirit is bringing about regeneration, Lord. And many of us, we get caught up, as you well know, Lord, many of us get caught up because we, really, we don't really believe the gospel. We don't really believe what all occurred when we place faith and trust in you. And I pray in just for the next few minutes, we could be present with you, thinking about that, remembering your sacrifice. In your name we pray, amen.